This recording is copyrighted by Grant Susalu and is licensed and released under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. This recording is freely released for any personal use, including duplication and sharing in its entirety, and provided that it is not used for commercial sale or used in any context other than the educational context within which it was created, and that credit of its authorship is attributed to the copyright owners with links back to the website www.mbraining.com. Please note that this recording is intended for educational purposes only and is not rendering any medical, psychological, financial, legal or other professional advice. Any personal actions taken based on this recording is at the sole discretion and responsibility of the listener. Hi, I'm Grant Suzalu. Did you know the latest research findings in neuroscience have shown that we all have three complex and functional brains, one in our head, one in our heart and one in our gut? Our book, Embraining, describes the scientific evidence for this as well as a suite of powerful yet practical methods for harnessing the capacities of your three brains to achieve greater wisdom in your daily decisions and in your actions. With MBIT, you can live more fully, more powerfully, and much more joyfully than ever before. I'm talking today with neurosurgeon Dr. James Doty. James is the founder and director of CARE, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University of which His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. James collaborates with scientists from a number of disciplines examining the moral, social and neural bases for compassion and altruism. James is also a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, as well as an inventor, entrepreneur and philanthropist. He also serves on the Senior Advisory Board of the Council for a Parliament of the World's Religions and the Advisory Board for the Greater Good Science Centre. In addition, James is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart, a book that's been translated into 31 languages. He is also the senior editor of the newly released Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science. So I'm talking today with Dr. James Doty, and James, thank you so much for your time today with us on this interview. wondered if you'd first off share a little bit about yourself and and where you've come from and to, because I've read your amazing book, Into the Magic Shop, and it so touched my heart. There were times when, you know, I was sitting there with tears flowing from my eyes. It really was so deeply touching. There were other times when it really had me so uplifted and, and really in such a beautiful, positive state. And for that reason, I reached out to you to uh, connect because your work and your passions and what you have to share is so very, very important, I feel. Uh, so, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your background. Uh, sure. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you, Grant, today. And so thank you for inviting me. Uh, my background is that I grew up in uh, Southern California. My father was an alcoholic and my mother had a stroke at a fairly young age and was partially paralyzed and uh, subsequently developed com- chronic depression and attempted suicide multiple times. My parents neither had gone to college, and my family was on public assistance uh, essentially my entire life while at home. Uh, We were evicted at different times from uh, different residences. So as you can imagine, that type of an environment is typically not one associated with traditional definitions of quote-unquote success. Mm -hmm. But... I was fortunate because 
at the age of 12, I was becoming a juvenile delinquent. I had a lot of anger and hostility about my situation and also my inability to do anything about my situation. At least that's how I felt at the time. And of course, when you feel powerless, when you feel that you have no opportunity, of course, this can result in you losing your dignity, losing your confidence. And, uh, uh, and that's what had happened. Hmm. Uh, but, but for me, if you will, what saved me was that at the age of 12, I walked into a magic shop. And the interesting thing about that was that this was in a, located in an area where I typically didn't go. And I just happened to be my uh, riding my bicycle a significant distance from my house and came upon what we call in the U.S. a strip mall, and in that strip mall was this magic shop, and I had had a long-time interest in magic. So I walked in, and it turns out the owner was not there, but his mother was there minding the store and reading a book at the counter with these glasses uh, on the tip of her nose, and she looked up at me, and she had this incredibly radiant smile, which embraced me, and when I asked her about some of the magic in the store, she informed me that she knew absolutely nothing about magic in the store and that it was her son's shop. But uh, the extraordinary thing was that this uh, resulted in us beginning a conversation. And I have to say that generally speaking, as a 12-year-old in my particular situation, I wasn't treated as an equal by an adult typically. Um, but she made me feel that way. She made me feel that she was listening, interested, and that my thoughts and comments were just as valid as anyone else's. So this led us to engage in a conversation for about 15 or 20 minutes. And at the end of it, she said to me, I really like you, and I'm here for another six weeks, and I think I could teach you something that could change your life. And obviously, very few of us in this world are ever in that situation. And I wish I could tell you at that time that I had any particular insight. Uh, but the fact of the matter was that she was nice. I had nothing else to do, and she had given me some cookies. <laughs> Straight to the gut. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that uh, was the motivator. And I did show up uh, every day for six weeks, and we spent an hour and a half or two and during that period of time together, she taught me basically four things that I discuss in the book, Into the Magic Shop. And the four things were really what actually my work focuses on today. And remember, this was in 1968 when people did not have an understanding or it was even thought possible that there was a, such a thing as neuroplasticity. Uh, mindfulness or meditation was certainly not in common use, uh, even the terms. But for whatever reason, uh, this woman had knowledge of that. Mm. And what she taught me in our first uh, number of sessions was something that is true even more today. And that truth was that I had an immense amount of anxiety and stress that was manifesting in two ways. One was uh, really being tense all the time. And the second, being unable to focus because I 
uh, never knew what was going to happen next. And as a result, my fight or flight response was always engaged. Hmm. And uh, when you're in that particular type of a situation, you cannot attend or be present. You are uh, focused on what might happen based on memories of what has happened. Yeah, hypervigilant. Exactly. And because of this hypervigilance, it was very, very difficult initially for me to relax and be able to focus. But over a period of sessions, she taught me with intention to, if you will, survey the body, which is one of the first practices in mindfulness, and with consciousness, relax my muscles, uh, just step by step from my toes to the top of my head, while uh, breathing slowly in and releasing it, and then uh, initially uh, focusing on a candle. Yeah. Although later she taught me the technique of focusing on a mantra. But each way uh, at least brought me to the same place, and it was to be able to sit in a relaxed fashion and to attend. And what we know today is if you are not able to do those two things, it is hard to learn and it's hard to connect in an authentic way. And one of the most important aspects of our humanity is being able to connect with another human being in an authentic uh, way. So once I learned that technique, the next thing that she uh, taught me uh, was an understanding that many of us, and certainly me at the time, have a dialogue going on in our head. And we believe that that dialogue is us. And the reality is that that dialogue has nothing to do with us. What it is is a created narrative based on the fact that as a species, when we hear negative things, they are sticky. And this is how we evolved as a species because in some ways they're protective Negative things mean that it means that there is potential harm. But unfortunately, in modern society, we create a narrative, which is a collection of negative things that we have heard and processed about ourselves. And sadly, we tell ourselves that we are not capable of X, Y or Z. We're not smart. We're not pretty. Uh, we don't deserve this, et cetera, et cetera. And because we believe that narrative is us, once you believe something, uh, by definition, it becomes impossible to do that thing or to overcome that created narrative. And as a result, what happens is that this begins to create a prison, if you will, brick by brick, that stops us from reaching our fullest potential because brick by brick we start narrowing the possibilities of what we are capable of until finally we are sitting in a dark room and when you're in a dark room of course it can be scary it can be oppressive and stifling and once she made me see that and appreciate it and also to truly believe that I had unlimited potential, it allowed me to escape from the prison. 
And she gave me the key to do that. And when I opened the door to the prison, then I was embraced by light, infinite possibility, possibilities. What she did to allow me to believe that I had infinite possibilities was also an understanding that that negative dialogue was in some ways a result of not having compassion for myself, not accepting myself as perfect the way that I am and not accepting that I had worth. And from there, she taught me what is now called self-compassion and Kristen Neff and uh, Chris Germer and others uh, have done a lot of work in this area and having compassion for yourself where you are accepting, you recognize that you're a frail, fragile human being. You recognize that you have a shadow and you also recognize that this is the nature of being human. And it is the case with everyone. Then it allows you to change the narrative or change the channel, if you will, from one of hyper critical commentary to one of self-affirmation, one of acceptance, and one of believing that you have infinite possibilities and abilities. And once you do that, you are free. Once you do that, the universe is expansive and it's no longer this dark place. And this is a requirement for you to be able to have compassion for others. Because when you spend so much time beating up on yourself, being hypercritical with yourself, it results in you being that way towards others. It results in you judging others. It results in you using your own insecurities to be mean to others so that they're not as self apparent to you and so um, as a result uh, from changing that narrative to one of self-compassion self-affirmation it then allowed me to have an open heart to others because when you're in this state of beating yourself up you're not looking outward you're looking inward and you're looking inward at all of your problems you're looking inward at your own suffering and it limits you from your ability to connect with others and recognize that they are suffering. From this lesson, she taught me the next critical thing, at least for me in terms of my own transformation, which was the reality that to maximize our abilities and potential, it requires one to have clarity of intention. And this is really uh, incredibly important because you have to have an ability to separate and understand the difference between what you think you want and what you truly need. And I have to be honest with you that as a 12-year-old, I did not process that initially because I thought the most important thing for happiness and contentment was acquiring, quote-unquote, traditional success, power, position, money, and that would give me control. And once I had control, I, everything would be perfect, and I would be happy, and I would have no problems. 
And the fact of the matter was that was not the case whatsoever. And in fact, when I had all of those things, I was never more miserable than I had ever been. And it was only when I lost everything that I had time to reflect on what she had taught me again and realized that the most important thing in regard to having contentment, happiness, meaning in life was being of service to others. And that when you are able to be in that position, when you're able to see that everyone else is suffering on some level, when you're able to understand that events that occur have neither a good nor a bad, but that we paint them uh, with colors uh, based on our emotional state at the time, and then we accept that picture uh, that we painted as the actual picture or event that occurred. And once I was able to understand that, it allowed me to put myself in the position of the other person. It allowed me to, I believe, more clearly see the true nature of reality and to be able to release the emotional content of memories and simply accept events that occurred as they were without my attachment to the emotional state that I felt at the time. Because, as you well know, uh, events uh, occur. And when we sit there and see an event as a good or bad, it taints every interaction we have with that memory and causes a great degree of suffering. When we're able to understand that, then your suffering dissipates. As an example, in my own situation with my family life, I had a lot of anger and hostility towards my situation, uh, towards my parents, uh, and f- the feeling that they had abandoned me or were not there to nurture me. And uh, while that may, in fact, be true and was true, they were not doing this intentionally. They had their own issues that they did not have the requisite tools to deal with. And so they were doing the best they could, uh, and that was it. And once I was able to be able to go back on events and just sit with them without judgment or prejudice or my own um, baggage that I was carrying, suddenly all my anger uh, was dissipated. And what I tell people is that when I changed how I reacted to the world, how I changed how I reacted to the events of my past, the world changed how it reacted to me. And that fundamental difference combined with the ability to have clarity of my own intention to be able to visualize what I truly wanted and uh, define that vision over and over again through repetition of my intention, then that allowed things to manifest my lo- in my life in a far different way and a very positive way. Mm. It's a, an amazing set of learnings that you know, what a gift you were given as a young child and, you know, a young child in that situation. And, you know, as you explain in your book, the, the things that ensued in your life and the, the continued lessons and learnings you got from them. And ultimately, you, you become a uh, very successful neurosurgeon, 
you uh, set up and head up the, at Stanford the CCARE, the Center for Compassion Research. It, it's just you've done some amazing things based from that beautiful foundation of learning that, the, as you said, the world changed changes for you in its response to you when you change in yourself how you are sending out messages both within and without in your relationships and your relationship to the world. It's, it's an amazing story, James, and, and one that's quite inspiring, I think. Well, thank you so much. But, you know, the other uh, aspect of this is that one is so many of us have attachments to the good things that have happened in our lives. When you're given an accolade, when you're given an award, when you win a race, when you get a promotion. And, of course, that experience is wonderful. It uh, is affirming. It uh, makes you feel good at the time. And it is really wonderful. But the problem is that so many people get attached to that desire for that to be repeated over and over again. And it, it, it distracts them from what's important because no longer are they seen with clarity. What we forget oftentimes and what you alluded to is the fact that negative events or what we think are negative events, uh, where uh, nominally bad things happen to us, in retrospect, after time has passed, after you process the event, uh, these uh, can result in the greatest uh, learning uh, and the greatest amount of uh, insights that ultimately lead to wisdom, if you will. And they're the ones, frankly, that carry with us far, far beyond uh, simply uh, transitory reward. Mm. And included with that, is the development of this concept of equanimity, where regardless of the high or the low, you maintain an evenness of temperament, where you can sit with a wonderful experience and acknowledge it and be with it, but you're not attached to it. And similarly, when a negative event is occurring or something that is if you will, bad happening to you, you can understand that, again, it's usually transitory. And two, that there is something to learn from the experience. And when you have that knowledge and acceptance of that reality, then you're not lost in either place. You are maintaining your equanimity. Mm. Yeah, from an MBIT perspective, embraining perspective, we'd be saying that the equanimity is really autonomic balance. You're staying in a place of beautiful autonomic balance, and from that place, it's the most adaptive place for you to be able to uh, learn, to cope, and to directionalize the appropriate neuroplasticity. Because, of course, getting very uh, upset is a form of celebration. You, know, you create an intensity in the autonomic nervous system, and that directionalizes... Uh, neuroplasticity in its own way. So the more you get upset about something, the more you're literally intensifying the the stored memories and learned associations from that place. So you're you're absolutely right. To keep yourself in the most adaptive place, to be the highest expression of yourself in the way you bring your human spirit alive in the world, you need to do it from a place of autonomic balance, which is equanimity. 
That's exactly right, because as you just pointed out, when you have created this negative space or you're uh, lost in self-celebration or self-acknowledgement, your executive control function is impaired, your ability to be creative is impaired, your ability to be discerning is impaired. So this characteristic of equanimity is absolutely critical. With, uh, I go up to the mountains just above where I live and do an extended meditation retreat with a Tibetan Lama. And one of the things he says is, if you want to be compassionate, if you want to understand what compassion is, then the basis for compassion is in order to be compassionate or wisely compassionate as compared to what he calls dumb compassion, you know, compassion that makes things worse. But wise compassion requires calmness. He said if you just want to understand what you know is the water for the soup of compassion, the water is calmness. Any act that would bring calmness to yourself and the situation would be the beginnings of an act of compassion. And that notion of calmness being the foundation in which, you know, the road for the MBIT model, the road map to, to wisdom runs on on the surface of calmness, of equanimity, of autonomic balance. Without that, you can't get to wise compassion, wise creativity, or wise courage. I, I think you're exactly right. Is this reality that, and you mentioned, if you will, quote unquote, dumb compassion. And uh, as an example, I mean, let's say somebody, and in fact, actually, <laughs> I had this happen to me. I was uh, in a situation very late at night, on a date, if you will, uh, and, a, and at two in the morning, I was standing by my car with my data, opening the car door, and an individual approached uh, us with a gun and uh, wanted money. And one response could be, you know, to uh, be aggressive back towards the individual, which, of course, could result in... Uh, tragedy from all perspectives. But fortunately, what I was able to do was frankly not to get upset at all and to look at him and understand that for him to do such an act, uh, he must be in great pain and need. And by not uh, getting upset, by simply talking to him, he relaxed and I said to him what is it that you need that I can give you and then there was no issue anymore and in fact when he left I had no anger no hostility and I felt blessed and I was blessed I felt blessed because I was appreciative of my own situation and at the same time, I was sad that he felt he had to do this to deal with his own pain and suffering and his other issues. The interesting thing is the woman I was with was just profoundly, profoundly negatively affected. I mean, as soon as he left, she started screaming. She became hysterical. And ultimately, uh, she needed psychiatric care. And, and it was very, very unfortunate. But you see, she was completely unprepared and uh, was overcome with fear and anxiety. And as a result, her own response was limited, and she trapped herself in this uh, very negative response. Now, I'm not saying 
that I can't appreciate why she felt that way. But the pain it caused her uh, was very, very profound. And for me, the event happened. I was done with it. And that was it. There was no more. There was no thing sitting there uh, painful. It just happened. Yeah. And and uh, I think learning how to be in that situation, learning how uh, to understand that oftentimes aggressive or negative actions towards others, or excuse me, negative uh, reactions uh, towards uh, those who are being aggressive towards you typically are not helpful. And in fact, those actions oftentimes are motivated by things that have nothing to do with you whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I really think that, you know, that that way of being in, in the situations that you've just expressed, it can make a profound difference. Like uh, instead of it becoming a theft and a mugging, it turns into an act of giving and say, what can I give you? You know, at the moment you're in pain and, and suffering and I'm in you know, a position of plenty. Here, actually, if I knew what your real suffering were, if you're my brother, I would give you this. Let me, you are, in a sense, you know, every human is connected to us, so here, uh, please take this, this money if that will help you, or whatever it is that the person needed at that point in time. It's a very different response than, no, you know, the theft of money, and now we have to get all sorts of things involved. The, the healing that could have occurred for that person in that situation, where another person truly saw him and his suffering, would possibly be a bigger gift. It'd be like in the magic shop where you were seen by Ruth and you said you, she connected with you as not as a child but as a person and that being seen, that presence, can make a transformational difference. That's exactly right. She saw me as another human being who was suffering. And in fact, another example in the book is the uh, interaction I had with the bully where I saw him and I saw his pain. And he knew I saw him. And and then he left. So this is the challenge, though, for each of us is to be able to act in this fashion. Now, certainly, I am not perfect, and it's not always possible, but that is my aspiration. And, but to be able to have that degree of discernment and equanimity it's fairly easy to do with those you love or uh, uh, friends. Uh, it's a much harder task for many when it's a person either you're neutral to or you feel uh, is your enemy. And that is true compassion when you can get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Now, James, one of the things I was very keen to explore with you and talk to you about, given you know, you're in uh, at Seacare with the research that's being done, you know, world-leading research on compassion. So what a beautiful opportunity seeing, seeing the model that my colleague and I and uh, people in our community have been exploring and sharing, which is that the, you know, there are these three functional, adaptive, complex neural systems in the, the body that neuroscientists working in the areas of neurocardiology and neurogastroenterology saying that you know we have these small brains in the heart and, and the gut and uh, of course the big one in the head these neural intelligences are involved in embodied cognition as Damasio would say somatic re-representation they're, they're involved in effective and wise decision making that uh, it's not all done up in the head 
And from our work, we uh, posit that the highest expression, if you look at the competencies of the heart, intelligence, and you look at the competencies of the gut and the head, that when they're in autonomic balance, the highest expressions, uh, you know, those that are the most integrative and adaptive, we see as being compassion in the heart, creativity in the head, and courage in the gut. And so to do the wise version of compassion, for example, it needs to be creative. It needs to come up with a creative solution. Otherwise, if you, you, you can do that form of dumb compassion that actually makes things worse rather than, than better. Or if you just have feelings in the heart, that's empathy. But compassion you know, is, is a tripartite process that not only has to notice that other person's suffering from the head-based perspective, you have to empathically feel that in, you know, in the heart. But then you also have to take action. You know, it actually takes some courage to take action in the world. Otherwise, if you just have the feelings in your heart and don't do anything about it or don't come up with a creative solution, you make things worse or you, you, know, you have feelings and thoughts but then you never take action. So from our perspective, you know, these highest expressions express together and when you do that, uh, it is an emergence of wisdom. People uh, produce wiser decisions from a place of equanimity, compassion, creativity and courage in that sequence. Uh, I just wondered if you had any thoughts, ideas, you know, research that you knew of, that supported this notion that compassion is one of the highest expressions of the human spirit. Well, it's interesting. There's an article, or I should say a chapter, that uh, one of my fellows and uh, colleagues wrote called Compassion is the Highest Ethic. And uh, it talks about, uh, in some ways, exactly uh, what you're saying. The other aspect that you uh, mentioned which is this notion that there is a connection between the head and the heart and the gut, if you will, is truth. Uh, we know that what we call the autonomic nervous system, which occurs at a subconscious level, although you can uh, affect it, uh, is through the vagus nerve. And this nerve uh, exits the brain through the brainstem and is represented with a significant amount of neurons within the heart and also a number in the gut and various other organs of the body. And this is the interesting thing, though, is that when we're in our conscious mind, we uh, get lost in explanation. But when we're in our heart, if you will, or in this other place where there is this intelligence, there's no explanation needed because uh, you intuitively sense that this is the natural state where you should be. And when you're in this natural state, which shifts you from the stress response or this uh, sympathetic uh, nervous system response to our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our... Um, rest and digest system, uh, that is when your physiology works at its best. And we did not appreciate for many, many years our ability to train ourselves to take control of what typically has been uh, at an unconscious level and uh, shift us from stress to relaxation. And when you're able to shift over, if you will, to this state, which I believe is our default mode or this natural state, 
it's then when you can really see and you can perceive the true nature of reality. And it is when you're in this state that, in fact, you are truly free and capable of giving unconditional love to everything and everyone, and which by default is the highest expression of compassion. Mm. Beautiful. So true. And uh, it is from the heart that we truly see you know, with greater clarity. Awesome. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I'm, I'm aware that time is, is getting on and you've obviously got a, a very busy practice and you're doing many, many things around the world. So uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, envelop on too much of your time. So thank you very, very much for sharing your thoughts, ideas and knowledge with us. Uh, I highly recommend your book, Into the Magic Shop. It's a beautiful read. It's, it's an, a moving read and there's a huge number of lessons in it. And thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing in uh, doing research and putting a focus on compassion because for for us, from the MBIT coaching perspective, we believe that this heart-focused compassion is, is you know, the heart leads and from that place we, we can guide our head brains and the incredible creativity. Head brain creativity alone without being guided by compassion, kindness, you know, connection, love, service to others uh, can be very, very dangerous and there's quite a bit of research that shows that if you increase creativity without increasing pro-social focus that you actually end up with more cheating, stealing and deceptive behaviours in normal people. So I think the work that you know, uh, you're doing at Stanford and uh, with others around the world is so vitally important. Is there any one last message you'd like to share with, with anybody or let them know where to, to go and learn more about your work or the, the work of CCARE? Well, for anyone who is interested in the work that we're doing at Stanford, uh, they can find us at CCARE, C-C-A-R-E dot Stanford dot edu. Uh, for those interested to learn more about Into the Magic Shop, uh, there's a website, intothemagicshop.com. For those who may have more of an academic bent, the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science uh, was just released yesterday. Oh, wow. And uh, is a compendium of all the latest research throughout the world in this domain from a variety of different uh, perspectives and specialties, uh, psychology, uh, neuroscience, behavioral science, evolutionary science, etc. And I believe that that will become the Bible uh, for this field at the moment, which is an ever-growing uh, field. And also, we were talking about intention. Uh, I have actually begun my next book, which at least tentatively is called Out of the Magic Shop, The Secret Power of Intention. And it is. It is a secret power. And uh, it's the deep power of that, isn't it? The, the magic. That's absolutely right. And understanding the power of intention is what allows each of us to manifest our own potential wrapped within unconditional love and compassion. Mm, the self and others. Exactly. The other thing, just as a last word, is everyone listening should not forget that regardless of their position, how much money they have, every one of us every day has the ability 
to, in a positive way, affect another individual. And we should never forget that. So true. So true. And you never know what grows from the seeds of touching even one life. When when Ruth touched your life back in the magic shop, uh, a 12-year-old, little did she know how that would continue to grow and flourish across the planet because your work now touches the lives of so many people, both in, in terms of your writing and the science that you support and promulgate through uh, your work at Stanford and, and the work of your colleagues. So that, that one little positive intention where she gave you those cookies and truly saw you and connected with you um, and offered you that gift of talking to you every day for six weeks, what, a, what an amazing journey that created. Absolutely. And in fact, I mean, look, it allows me to connect with you. Now, we're, you're in uh, Australia. Yeah, I'm in the middle of the Australian bush, an hour from the nearest town on the coast, with kangaroos outside my window even as I speak. And, and, and from this, you know, this place now with the amazing technologies we have, we can touch the lives of, of so many people. Four years ago, four and a half years ago, I, in, in answering the question, the, this you know, ambit question of to be the highest expression of yourself. So what would be the most compassionate, creative and courageous you that you could be, feel and do? Um, I realized I had to give up my lucrative consulting business, which was you know, sort of about uh, doing uh, system development and organizational leadership development. But it was working for big corporates. And uh, I recognized that with this model where the neuroscience was now validating what ancient wisdom traditions have been saying for thousands of years, that we have intelligences, or what they called souls. In a more primitive term, these neural intelligences in our body were known by most Aboriginal um, spiritual traditions as souls. So we had, they said we had three souls imbued in head, heart and gut. Neuroscience now shows that we have three complex functional adaptive neural intelligences that are part of embodied cognition in the head, heart and gut. The autonomic nervous system is the communication control gateway and intelligence in its own right with memory and and higher order conditioning and learning. And this beautiful distributed intelligencing system, when you take it to a place of autonomic balance, which breathing is a gateway, put yourself into a place of compassion, creativity and courage, what would you be, feel and do? So when I asked myself that question, I recognized, well, we had science now to validate ancient wisdom. And this was a model I could share and promulgate across the planet that would allow organ, you know, organizational leaders and therefore all lives that they touched and coaches touch the lives of leaders in coaching, that we could now share this model and get a, a deeper understanding away from this uh, runaway head-brain world that we're in and start to rec- reclaim the intelligence and intuitive knowing from the neck down, led from the heart, led from compassion. Uh, and so I gave up my daytime job. I'm on, on what I call a wisdom sabbatical now for four, last four and a half years. And uh, uh, thankfully, my wife allows me to do that my beloved, and uh, I can connect with people like yourself, James, now from the middle of this Aussie bush, you know, the middle of nowhere, really, and we can, you know, through interviews like this, and we now have MBIT coaches um, and trainers across 30 countries and spreading. So in four years, we're, we live in a time on the planet where we can truly make a difference, and, and it's really about just your scope of intention. It's exactly what you're talking about with intention. I set my scope of intention to... a to you know, want to be part of a movement that helps human consciousness evolve you know, and, and literally evolve you know, and reconnect back with what we've known for thousands of years, but do it with with neuroscientific laser-like precision, which is what we need in our you know our modern head-based world. So uh, it's it's quite 
fascinating and amazing what you can do as Ruth taught you if you just set the intention come from a place of balance and equanimity but do so with deep love for self and humanity then I think it resonates with people and in community we can change the world one of us alone can do very little but in community we can we can shift where humanity is you know 7.6 billion humans on the way to 11 billion according to the UN by the end of the century where 11 billion humans will go um, I think it's we're at a very crucial important you know exponential time where each of us can truly make a difference and it starts with touching as you said the life of just anyone you're close to in a positive way I think that's uh, right and maybe at some point uh, we can talk about a, an initiative I am starting called the compassion revolution which I think uh, ties up nicely with the work you're doing and also just to mention uh, uh, we're speaking in, uh, to you in Australia, and I have many friends uh, in Australia and have been there multiple times. I don't know if you know the movement that's going on in uh, Sydney with uh, John O'Fisher and uh, his, uh, I believe it's called the Global Mindful Leadership Conference, which I spoke at uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's also another uh, 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 group in Brisbane at the University of Queensland. Uh, I had a fellow visit me from Queensland, and then this led to another, and these are psychologists uh, who actually did a fellowship with me, and now there's a compassion center at the University of Queensland in Brisbane we're doing, where we are doing a, a, a significant amount of uh uh, collaborative work with uh, James Kirby and uh, Stan Stindl. And then in Melbourne, uh, we have an individual, uh, more than one actually, who have taken our compassion cultivation training uh, program. And you can find on our website uh, the names of those individuals who are actually uh, doing compassion cultivation training uh, in Melbourne and other parts of Australia so uh, I have a great fondness uh, for uh, you guys down there and uh, am looking forward to uh, visiting uh, again, hopefully in the near future. In fact, uh, an, an individual has reached out to me to give some lectures next year. So I'm hoping to be down there in the April-May time frame. Oh, brilliant. Well, if, if you happen to come anywhere near where I live, you, you'd be most welcome to come and visit and we'll go out and feed the kangaroos together. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Listen, Grant, you take care. Thank you for having me, and I'll look forward to our continued uh, conversation. Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate it. Yes, and best to you. Cheers. Thanks, James.